So here we are, having spent this day, these last uh, 24 hours or so, here together, practicing, engaging with this rather simple and yet remarkably challenging and yet equally powerful, potent process. Engaging with our own hearts and our own minds, our own bodies. Not an easy undertaking and yet a rewarding one. Having spoken with quite a few of you today in the small groups, at least two-thirds of you, and just hearing from you the challenges and also yet the, the places in which you are touched and moved by this journey that we undertake together. Seeing that inner transformation is something which has its own life, we could say. It's not something we can produce as an act of will or force with our intentionality and willpower, but which we can invite, which we can allow, which we can support and encourage. And in this in this weekend retreat with the emphasis and the focus towards connecting with, opening to, allowing ourselves to be touched by the natural sense of caring, the natural sense of openness, of friendliness, that we recognize, that we understand as possible for us, and yet which we also recognize as often somewhat distant from us, not always available to us. This that we've been undertaking together, perhaps you notice, as some of you have reflected, how over the days, it, well, over the day, it, it changes. It, sometimes it seems kind of sweet, kind of easy, quite possible. At other times it may feel really difficult or challenging or confusing. Journeys are often like that. And in terms of the the practice in terms of the teachings of the Buddha, having a sense of what the framework is in which we are engaging, engaging in this cultivation, I think is very useful. So I'd like to speak some about that tonight, the framework of practice. That sense of potential and possibility to be more and more fully that which we already are, and yet do not fully know, do not directly access or have access to the full depths and breadth of our human heart, the uh, potential of our human life. There's so much a sense, I think, and a pretty much universal sense that goes together with the the comment I made last night that pretty reliably nobody wants to suffer. It's one of those things we have in common for all our remarkable variations and differences and individualities. No one particularly wants to suffer. And something else we have in common is, again, quite universally recognized, a sense of wishing to be loved, a sense of wishing to be appreciated, cared for, valued seen as something precious. And it's as if within us we have some sense of that possibility, again, some sense that that might be true, and yet in another way we don't necessarily quite trust that. We don't necessarily quite easily believe that there is something profoundly precious and true in what we are and what it is to be alive. And in this sense of wanting to be loved, it's such a powerful thing and yet such a difficult thing. We see how much we might yearn to feel a sense of appreciation and love for ourselves and yet how for so many it's really difficult. 
And often, in that sense of, of loving, there's a sense of, well, that sense of wanting to be loved, a sense of needing to be loved, that looking for, for love. There's a way in which we're not quite sure if it's safe to let our hearts be open. We're not quite sure if it's really a good idea. For all that we see and recognize the pain of being closed off to ourselves or closed off to others, of being disconnected from the, the tenderness and the sensitivity of our, our heartfulness, our heartfeltness, that aspect of what we, and who we are. And yet there's a certain ambivalence sometimes, isn't there? I don't know if any of you, well, in fact I do know, because some of you have told me, speaking about it in the groups, but I wonder if others of you, whether you've experienced this, that sense of, hmm, do I really want to become more sensitive? Do I really want to feel my life more deeply? Because sometimes when I do that, it hurts. Sometimes when I do that, it's scary. Sometimes when I do that, I don't quite know how to keep it all together, stay in a position of control or certainty in relationship to my life. And that can be unsettling, it can be threatening. There's something familiar, there's something reassuring, there's something strangely comfortable about staying distant. Not really comfortable, not truly comfortable, but somehow at some level we seek or we choose, it seems, whether we seek or not, I don't know, but we choose not to be wholeheartedly connected, not to be wholeheartedly in touch with our life, to not allow the, the love that is within us to move freely into the world, to touch others, to touch ourselves. And it speaks really of the experience of our lives in which, for many of us, the experience of being open, of being sensitive, of allowing our heart to be really out there in its tenderness, is one in which we've experienced pain, we've experienced suffering. There's a sense in which we, we close down, we withdraw, in order to protect ourselves. We see how one of the lessons that we have learned, or think we should have learned, is that it's really not safe to love in this world. It's not really that safe to be open, to be connected, to be sensitive. Because it seems there are those who take advantage of that in ways that leave us feeling hurt, rejected, vulnerable, exposed. And so we learn to live in a way in which we are dealing with the difficulties, the challenges, the inevitable sensitivities and vulnerabilities of life that come to us in so many ways. We learn to live with that by withdrawing, by pulling away, by holding back from life, not really allow allowing ourselves, not really letting ourselves truly be touched by it. And it's, it's like we, we pull back into a shell or into a, a sense of wanting to armor ourselves, wanting to protect ourselves, wanting to defend ourselves against the keenness, against the, sometimes the unbearable sweetness of tenderness, of love, of the fragility of it all, in which these things that are so beautiful, so precious, including our own very life, can be taken away for no reason at any time. And how hard that is to live in that world, this world, in which the things of beauty and delight may, and in fact will, at some point, disappear. And it seems then if, if I open my heart to something that's not going to stay around, maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe I don't want to do that, we think, or we somehow come to believe. Or if I open my heart and I'm met by someone who's in their own place of anger or reactivity or need 
and they take advantage of that, then I'll be hurt or I'll be abused or I'll be undermined. And I'm not sure I want that to happen. In fact, of course, we don't want that to happen. But we can start to live in the habit of that reaction, the habit of that perspective. Where even when it's safe, even when it's okay, even when we're in a room full of people who are not going to hurt us, who aren't even going to talk to us, let alone say anything nasty, it's nonetheless still hard to allow ourselves to feel open. It's like it really doesn't get much more safe than here. I know we're a long way away from most things that could be difficult, except, of course, human beings. At some level, are threatening to us, it seems. And at the same time, we yearn for contact. We yearn for love. So how do we deal with this? Because there's a way in which we... we die inside if we don't allow ourselves to love, if we don't allow ourselves to be open. And we all know this. We've all experienced this to different degrees. That process of shutting down, of disconnecting, of becoming numb or dull. And how it's like we sort of armour ourselves with a sense of numbness. It's a way of not having to be touched by life. And yet within that, rather than being protected from the suffering of life, we're more keenly exposed to it. We're imprisoned within it, in fact. So part of what happens when we practice, when we come, is that we start to feel. Because we're taking away some of our escape routes. We're taking away some of the means whereby we normally avoid being touched by our life. And the consequence of that is, is that we feel. And not everything that we feel is pleasant or enjoyable. But nor is everything that we feel threatening or painful. Learning to inhabit this mixture of life which has both sweetness and painfulness in it. Being willing to do that, being willing to stay in the midst of our life and in the midst of our life, again and again open our heart, again and again turn towards our experience, turn towards others, turn towards ourselves, rather than turning away. It's my, my belief, and my understanding that we need, as a matter of our own survival, not just the survival of this planet and life on this planet, which equally needs it, but in terms of our own survival, we need to allow ourselves to love. We need to do that. I don't expect this to be news to you, but somehow... We don't always manage to live as though we understand and as if we know that. So we need to look at what makes it difficult. What is the place of fear in our lives? How does that affect us? How much of our life has been about avoiding what we feel threatened by? Pulling away, pulling back, closing down. If we're honest with ourselves, probably for most of us, we could say a lot of time and energy in our life has gone into escaping from or avoiding that which we find difficult. And then not surprisingly, when we come here on retreat and we're seeking to be still, to be connected, to cultivate a sensitivity and a warmth and friendliness to ourselves and to others, that what we notice is on a regular occasion the mind disappearing off somewhere else. It's a little bit unfamiliar or un uneasy to be here. And so we go looking for escape routes. That movement of, of unease, of fear, of escaping, plays itself out time and time again in our minds. Even if our body isn't running away, which is great, it's a good start, see how our mind runs away, runs this way, runs that way. And how in that running there's a sense of a tightening as we move away from where we are to somewhere else. There's an inevitable sense of a tightening, of a closing down, because we're losing contact with our life, losing contact with the heart of our being.
And what we also experience at times is a sense of feeling threatened, feeling attacked, or, or somehow needing to attack and respond, needing to push away. In terms of the, the primary activities of how we disconnect from our tenderness and warmth and friendliness, one is out of fear and the other is out of anger. When something's in our way, when something seems to be the problem, and often it's somebody else, sometimes it's ourselves. we notice, and we want to get rid of them. There's this way in which we either physically or verbally or just energetically and psychically, we start to exert pressure upon ourselves to be in a certain way. Or we say something or do something to push someone else away. And again, the effect of that is a tightening, a hardening, a disconnecting inside that we have to experience, we have to come to understand is not truly, in the end, protecting us. And to see how, again, it becomes a habit. As soon as something seems to be in my way, the tendency is to want to get rid of it. And how strong this is, how often we see this in meditation. There's some discomfort in the body, the wishes, I want that to go away. There's some thoughts in the mind, I wish they'd stop. I have some feelings that aren't warm, tender, glowing feelings of loving kindness. There's something else, less attractive and enjoyable. And we want them to go away too. Notice what happens when we push on our experience. It doesn't actually make the experience go away. It simply compresses and tightens our own capacity to meet it. And as a result, our world shrinks. And... And we see how, how that doesn't work. Hopefully we begin to see how that doesn't work. You cannot push your life away. And the cost of doing so is, is too great. There's a story, well in fact it's a, a transcript of a, of a circumstance, a situation that took place a number of years ago that was a revealed, I guess, through a series of radio conversations that were recorded and published later on. It kind of speaks about this habitual way we have of relating, struggling with life. And it's a transcript of a radio conversation between a US naval ship with Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October 1995. And it begins with a communication from the American ship. It says, Americans, please divert your course. 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. And the uh, Canadians respond, I recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Americans, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians, no, I say again you, divert your course. You kind of have the sense, do you ever have an experience like this? You know, you sort of have this feeling of just colliding with life. And then uh, the Americans, this is in capital letters, so I guess it's like shouting. It says, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you cha change your course 15 degrees north that's one five degrees north. Or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship. The Canadians respond. This is a lighthouse. <laughs> Your call. Did it ever feel like that for you in your meditation? Like we're just kind of pushing on something, wanting it to change, wanting the mind to be the way we want it to be, wanting the heart to be the way we want it to be, wanting the body to be the way we want it to be, wanting somebody else. I mean, if our own mind and our own body doesn't turn out the way we want it and we hope that somebody else is going to. And yet there's such a strong, compelling urge to somehow through exerting pressure on the experience, change it. But life is the way it is. 
And it can't be different than this, any more than the lighthouse can get out of the way of the ship, which obviously we laugh. We think how foolish of the captain of the ship ordering a lighthouse to move. And yet, don't we do that ourselves? Don't we recognize ourselves in that? And can't we see that there's pain in that? That there's suffering in that? And that the response that makes sense is to actually turn towards the situations of our life with care, with kindness, to allow ourselves to feel those tender places, to support others to likewise feel theirs. And yet not to judge, not to blame, not to blame another, not to blame ourselves for the fact that it's this way. It's so easy to think it's somebody's fault. My fault, your fault, one's own fault. Yet maybe it's not somebody's fault. Maybe it's simply that we don't see. We don't see truly, clearly and deeply the nature of our life, the nature of all of life. We don't truly and deeply understand it yet. And because of not seeing, because of not understanding, we we're caught in these habits of self-protective reactivity that ultimately isn't self-protective. That's harmful, that's painful. So could we imagine the possibility of not needing everything else to be just right? Not needing everybody else to think we're really great. Not needing even others to love us before we're willing to open our heart to them. Not making our willingness to open, our willingness to connect, dependent upon how the world is showing up. Because we can't control that. Not making it dependent upon how other people are showing up. Because we can't control that. Not even making it dependent on what feelings are arising within us. Because as you've noticed, as you've seen, we can't control that either. So what can we base it on? What could be the reason why we would wish to, to bring this into the world? Perhaps only in the end because we understand it's a matter of our survival. It's a matter of our well-being. It's it's so important. The Buddha once said, when asked, he said, of this practice of loving kindness, he said, and it was his, uh, his very uh, much loved and faithful attendant, Ananda, who once asked him, he said, would it not be true to say that half of our practice is for the cultivation of loving kindness? And the Buddha responded, he said, no, Ananda, it would not be true to say this. It would be true to say that the whole of our practice is for the cultivation of loving-kindness. That the entirety of spiritual practice can be understood. There's other ways one could describe it as well. But it can be understood as being for this capacity, to bring this capacity of our heart fully into life. But what will allow us to do that? How can that come to be for us? We have to be willing to include that tender and painful experience of life that touches us. That when we were young, perhaps as children, we felt we could not cope with. We felt we had to avoid pull away from or reject and push away because it may have seemed overwhelming and perhaps was for us. But as adults, having come to our deepening full or deepening and growing maturity, we do not need to fear our life. And much of the fear and the reactivity that we carry is simply the reenactment 
of patterns that were laid down before we had really the capacity that we have now to see clearly and to respond from a deeper place within. To allow ourselves to be open and sensitive to life and to love requires that we acknowledge that loss and sadness and fear and pain are part of what we encounter, not all of it by any means. And that allowing ourselves to be opened by the challenges of life, to be opened by those places that unsettle us, rather than closing down in response to them. Allowing ourselves to feel the tender depths of our heart that we feel so keenly. We have this remarkable capacity for love that we all know, that we've all experienced, though we may feel distant from it at times in our lives. But we know it. We wouldn't be alive if we hadn't known that, if we didn't know that. And yet equally there is this depth of sadness at times we can encounter. And yet somehow we just want the sweetness and not the sadness. But it can't be that way. In the loving-kindness meditation, we learn to orient towards that which evokes a quality of warmth and appreciation because the habit can be to be fixated on and focused upon that which is difficult, that which is problematic, to be almost hypersensitive, vigilant for the threats, the dangers, the problems, the things that have gone wrong or that aren't quite right. And so much of what we think about, we dwell upon, is all about that. And yet there's so much of radiance in life, so much of mystery and beauty that we often don't quite let let ourselves receive because we're so wired up for that, that sense of danger or difficulty. And yet when we acknowledge it, we see that it takes us to our very humanity, our shared humanity. And it doesn't separate us. When we allow ourselves to acknowledge the human experience of sadness, of sensitivity, of vulnerability, it's part of what we are. Rocks don't experience vulnerability. Dead things don't experience sensitivity. Being alive means being vulnerable, means being sensitive. And rather than shriveling or shrinking within that experience, we can actually allow ourselves to flow from that place when we understand that it is something we share with all of life. I'd like to read a poem by Naomi Shiab Nye entitled Kindness, which speaks to this. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is you I have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend.
to understand kindness as the only thing that makes sense anymore. It is only kindness that makes sense anymore. When we've understood what it means to be a human being, what it means to be alive, rather than feeling annoyed or angry or bitter about the fact that it's like this, when we just let it in, and sitting in meditation, we have little choice but to begin to do that. We start to feel how it gets in, just by no longer running away, just by coming back, by turning again to this possibility of kindness, of friendliness, of openness, again and again turning to that capacity. Life starts to get in, we start to feel, we start to sense. We don't always welcome everything that we feel or that we sense. But as you allow yourself to do it, the fact of that very sensitivity itself starts to show itself as more and more potent, more and more powerful. And as a, as a stream that flows from that very core of our being that love and kindness equally move from, to allow yourself to be touched in this way as we practice here together. And to to really understand that we ourselves and each and every being in this world partakes of the same vulnerability, the same sensitivity, the same wish for happiness, the same wish to be able to live as the expression of this love. This love that is the expression of our nature, of the nature of life the nature of the awakened mind and heart. That spiritual practice invites us to discover, to realize, and to live through and in and from. We need to forgive ourselves for all the mistakes we've made in our life. Not an easy undertaking, but a worthy one. We equally need to forgive others but starting with ourselves, to see so much of our hardness towards ourselves is a lack of forgiveness for our mistakes, for our lack of perfection. And yet how else could we have lived and come to learn anything at all except by making mistakes? That's how we grow, that's how we learn. Just like children have to be allowed to skin their knees while they learn to walk, well they never will. For we always hold their hands. So we too have to enter into life without a guidebook or a map. And that doesn't mean we've done something wrong. There's a story of a Zen master who is visited by a student and the student comes along and says, Master, please, can you tell me what is the most important thing in life? And the Zen master looks at him, he says, good judgment. The student says, oh, master, thank you, thank you. That's really helpful. Huh? Can you tell me how do you get good judgment? The master looks at him, he says, experience. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yes, I understand, experience. Can you tell me how do you get experience? Zen master looks at him and says, hmm, bad judgment. There's no other way really, is there? If we see it like that, then perhaps we can begin to soften towards ourselves for the times when we've practiced bad judgment on the way to gaining experience from which, over time, good judgment flows. Perhaps we can be a little more understanding of others who in their pain and fear and reactivity also are learning slowly and sometimes painfully what it means to be truly and fully alive. And to see that when we understand that, we understand that the, the greatest danger in life is not that we will be 
hurt or harmed by external events or situations or even internal. But the greatest danger is in fact where we allow our hearts to close, where we allow ourselves to become disconnected from life because that is the price of becoming desensitized. The, the, the hope of safety or to not have to feel anything difficult turns out to have the cost which we cannot bear of losing contact with life, being disconnected. To understand this is actually the greatest danger we face. And that we practice, and in practicing this way we're coming up against different waves and forms and ways of which we've disconnected or we disconnect. And yet keeping turning towards, coming back with a sense of, okay, can I bring a spirit of friendliness into this place, into this moment? It may seem hard at times, but we can do it. It's always possible. And it's, it's a little bit like the rather remarkable story of, a, of an old Tibetan monk who'd escaped from occupied Tibet across the high mountains in winter with little clothing and little food. And having arrived in Dharamasala in India, had an opportunity to meet with His Holiness the Dalai Lama who tries to meet all the refugees who come across the mountains and ask them his story it was being told of you know, the, the high passes, the cold, the, the armed guards on the border who would shoot to kill if they should see him. And His Holiness asked the old monk, he said, tell me, venerable sir, on this journey, this incredible journey you've just made, were you ever in danger? And the old monk looked at him, he said, only when in my heart I started to hate the Chinese government. Remarkable wisdom to come through such hardship, such difficulty, and to really know that for all the other dangers that there must have been in that journey, that the greater danger was where we closed down. The danger to one's heart. So what happens if we allow ourselves to again and again open, to again and again be touched, to again and again come back to that, that natural sense of inclination that's so deep, it's something we can't uproot even if we would wish to, that inclination to want to connect, to want to open, that finds its expression and its fullness as, a, as an abundance of of tender loving kindness, of a wish to just touch and be touched by life, to contribute to the welfare of others equally as to ourselves, to protect and to preserve the vulnerable, the innocent, the sensitivity of life, both within ourselves and in others. And to honour the remarkable beauty and preciousness of what it is for anything to be alive at all. This mystery, this miracle that we can't comprehend, that we can't really explain, even if we should try. That life is, and we are, part of that. Inextricably part of this that we call life. To understand that we are part of something larger. To see that when we find, when we connect with that sense of tenderness and caring, when we allow ourselves to love, when we allow ourselves to take that risk, to enter that vulnerability, even though it may not be reciprocated, but when we allow ourselves nonetheless to do that, what it speaks to us about, and again, I think we all know this, but we sometimes forget it. What it speaks to us is a, of a quality of, and a depth of, of relatedness in which we can't really say that there is me and there is you, or there is this and there is that. There is justice that we call life and all that is being part of it. 
the very nature of love is to not see what it sees as anything other than itself. To not see what it encounters as something apart from itself. And when we've experienced love, there's this melting, there's this dissolving of the, the boundaries and the solidities and the separateness that is so, so compelling for us because it's true. Because it speaks to us of our deeper truth, which we know, which we understand in our hearts. But don't yet trust in our minds or in our lives as fully as we can learn to. To see that we are not other than all that is around us. That we are not separate from each other. Our minds kind of struggle with that, you know. I'm over here, you're over there, what's he talking about? You know, of course there's a certain reality to that too. And yet in another and deeper dimension of life, there's no reality to that separation. There is no over here and over there. There is no this and that. There simply is life. Aliveness. Shining through a million different expressions. Pulsating in the midst of a billion, billion beings. And as we come to understand that, as we start to see that, as we allow the sense and the touch of tenderness, of love, of caring to be felt, and allow it to speak to us because it speaks to us of that deeper vision, of that profound transformation. It speaks to us of that as we, as we allow ourselves to hear that, to feel that, as we stay open, although it may be a little shaky or a little scary, and allow the warmth of that to come through, the, the tenderness, the warmth, the kindness of life then naturally our response is towards all beings. Ourselves, others, those we know and those we don't. Naturally the response is to wish to contribute to the happiness and to the well-being. Because we understand that our own sense of wanting to promote or preserve our happiness is served most profoundly and deeply through caring for the happiness of all. And that our wish to be loved and to stay open in our hearts is most served by unconditionally extending kindness and love to all things, to ourselves, to each moment. And equally to all those moments in which we find, for one reason or another, we're not able to do that. Because we're caught in the habits of reactivity, of fear, of anger, of neediness, and that those places become then places that we wish to explore, to understand, to free ourselves in the midst of, so as to be able to get out of the way. So as to get out of the way, because when we step out of the way, life's natural expression, which is love, just as life is the expression of love, so too life's expression is love. This just begins to move and flow. And in that there is a, a profound healing. A healing that is born of wholeness. Those words having the same root. When we understand what wholeness is. Through not holding back and that this quality of kindness and of love, it's almost like the fabric or the texture that fills the spaces between us when we allow it to, that dissolves the separation that appears and yet is not ultimately there. That healing and that wholeness that come together, that are of the same root in terms of language, are equally the basis 
of holiness, which comes likewise from the same root. The, the spiritual, the divine, the, the truth of life that is free and unbound, that manifests in a natural and effortless loving kindness to all things. All these come together from that same place, from that same realization. And so in practicing loving kindness in the way we're doing, we're learning to connect with ourselves again and again when we experience disconnection coming back. We're learning to orient, turning towards that sense of friendliness, that possibility of tenderness or kindness for all the times that we experience a pulling back of fear or a pushing away of anger or just a sense of disinterest born of boredom or some other reaction. Every time that happens, just re-engaging, reconnecting. It's like we're turning back, turning again, opening again and again. And in that, allowing ourselves to more and more fully and deeply align with the truth of our life. The truth that speaks within us, that calls us in our heart to this, to this opening, to this awakening, to this immensity of loving kindness. So let's just sit quietly for a minute or two together. So may we all, through our practice and in our lives, deepen in our capacity to rest in the undefended heart of sensitivity, of tenderness, of warmth and friendliness. And may we live our lives with loving kindness, with compassion, and in the understanding that we are part of, not apart from, all that lives. That life is indivisible and love, love is here in the midst of all this. And when life is not divided up, when life has no boundaries, then love is naturally unbounded and boundless.
So please continue with your practice. Just also want to mention uh, that there's a, a small group of people beginning a retreat this evening in the garden wing, which is over there, I guess. And uh, they'll be here for a, I think about three weeks and they'll be ringing a high-pitched little bell now and then for their own schedule. So if tomorrow you hear a few ting-ting-tings, they probably have nothing to do with you, unless it's the fire alarm, but that'll be a little more obvious. Um, but uh, just so you're not confused or wondering what's going on, there's a few other folk here just arrived this evening. And they'll likewise be practicing loving-kindness meditation. So uh, it's like a bit of extra support coming in, you could say, called in reinforcements. just after 8.30, so uh, perhaps we could have the sitting starting a little later than scheduled. If the bell would ring perhaps at uh, 8, maybe about 8.47 and we'll have the sitting at 8.55, so have the sitting beginning at 9 minutes, sorry, 5 minutes to 9. And just in your continuing now with some walking, just, just checking in to see who you feel moved to practice the loving-kindness meditation for. Could be yourself, could be someone else who you've already been working with or someone new who you feel moved to, to bring into your heart. And just to trust what you feel moved by in that regard. And just to let you know that uh, tomorrow we'll... I'll, uh, introduce working with someone difficult as an aspect of the practice and don't feel you need to sort of rush and do the advanced course already um, so uh, I'd encourage you to stay with where you feel quite more naturally and easily drawn in that regard for today, yourself or someone else in that category is uh, what I'd encourage you and see what happens in this practice uh, we have the next sitting in 25 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.